If you win Ohio and you win Florida and you win Iowa and all by big numbers, big, big win in Florida, all by big numbers. When that happens, nobody's ever lost. Nobody's ever lost. This was the scam of the century and this was the crime of the century. Welcome to America. Here in the world's greatest democracy, in spite of a clear result in the last presidential election, nearly half of the population and almost all of the supporters of the losing side are convinced the vote was rigged. This is a story of a great project which has torn itself apart from the inside. It's about a political movement that has given up on politics and a loser who can't accept he lost. Most of all, it's a story about the end of democracy in America and their second civil war. We run a serious risk of pretty significant violence. January 6, 2021, this was their American Revolution. This isn't going away. Do you know the safest place in the world to be is at a Trump rally? I don't know how the, the great project works. At what point do we start saying this is no longer a democratic country? I'm Arthur Snell, and I spent much of my adult life in British government service all over the world trying to stop bad things from happening. I've done election monitoring in Zimbabwe, counterterrorism in Yemen, stabilisation missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now I'm back home in the UK and I'm the managing director of Orbis, a business intelligence consultancy. My work means I'm monitoring the issues driving global politics and security on a daily basis. And what I'm seeing is worrying. Simply put, the institutions that were established at the end of the Second World War to regulate global peace seem to be falling apart. Whether it's our failing forever wars, our relations with Russia and China, or the challenges of the online world, we don't seem very good at anticipating and mitigating major risks to our society. And the pandemic is a pretty good reminder that the biggest things we have to deal with can come out of nowhere. This podcast series is an attempt to guide you around the stuff that really matters in the world at the moment. The stuff that has the capacity to affect all of our lives. And what we'll see as we follow the thread is, like that line in my favourite movie, Syriana, everything is connected. These are the things that we have to get right, and if we get them wrong, we're in real trouble. This is Doomsday Watch. My name is Jack Goldstone. I'm a professor at George Mason's Shaw School of Policy and Government, and I've been researching revolution and political protest for pretty much my entire 40-year career. Jack Goldstone's a man after my own heart, a historian by trade. He sensed there was something amiss a long time ago. His 1991 book, Revolutions and Rebellions, presented a model to determine a nation's vulnerability to political crisis. When I started looking at revolutions, I really wanted to know, why do states collapse? They seem to have all the power on their side. And it turned out that there were a set of conditions that were quite common to periods of upheaval. And they involved the population losing out, having a falling share of national income, elites becoming more numerous, but also more competitive and more acquisitive, and then the politics of elites becoming more factional and polarized and angry. I developed that model because I was studying the great revolutions in history. I was kind of stunned to look around and realize, boy, these, these similar conditions actually seem to be underway in the United States and the other advanced capitalist countries. So much so that when you run these indicators for the 2010s and the 2020s, it looks now like we're getting to levels of underlying volatility that we haven't seen since the 19th century. Where there's anger, where there's polarized elites and where there's weak states, democracy may not work as well as it's supposed to. And so yes, even democracies can have violence and fall into some kind of upheaval or even civil war. Look, I think right now we run a, a serious risk of pretty significant violence. And 
you could call it a civil war, you could call it an insurrection or an uprising. Uh, the term you use is perhaps less important than the reality, which is we could see sporadic but quite severe violence in large parts of the US in the next, say, two to four years. That's David Kilcullen. I first met David more than 15 years ago when I was running the Foreign Office counter-extremism program. Since then, our lives have followed similar paths, Iraq, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. David has battled insurgents as an Australian infantry officer. He's got a doctorate in counterinsurgency and was America's chief counterterrorism strategist. He was the brains behind the Iraq surge and is probably the world's leading expert on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. This is a man who knows a thing or two about failed and failing states. And one of the things that he's observed is a lot of the failing is invisible. I've seen this too. In Yemen, back in the early 2000s, people used to say to me, this is a state failing in slow motion. But Yemen still had many of the features of a normal country, albeit a very poor one. Government ministries, a president who had won elections, political parties. Yemen had most of these things as recently as 2011. But nowadays, it's just a space on a map. Yemen has no functional government. These changes can happen in a few short years. So we actually know a fair bit about this by looking at um, state collapse under conditions of insurgency. Uh, the guy who I would point people to if they want to read some really well-researched work on this is Gordon McCormack, who's an academic at the Naval Postgraduate School in California. But um, in essence, to summarise Gordon's argument, and I, I see this reflected in the work I do as well, Insurgent groups tend to collapse slowly, right? Um, they they degrade a lot in the initial period, but then they have a long tail where they survive for a very long time. States are the opposite. States have lots of moving parts that all have to fit together, all have to work in harmony for the you know complex structure to operate, and they tend to get hollowed out. They degrade slowly, but then suddenly they collapse quickly. One example would be, you know, at the end of March, nineteen seventy five the South Vietnamese government still looked to all appearances fully in control of its own territory and was a functioning state. By a month later, the 30th of April, it had ceased to exist. Um, likewise, the Batista regime in Cuba seemed very solid until a couple of weeks before the collapse and then was gone by New Year's Day um, of 1960. So, and I think one of the issues we've seen here over the past several years is that a lot of institutions, the CDC, the Supreme Court, uh, the political parties themselves, um, state governments, the police uh, have been shown to have feet of clay, you know, and there's a sort of collapse of belief in the legitimacy of the system. And the fact that big tech firms and the uh, mainstream media are censoring dissent and preventing people from having the discussions about that doesn't make the problem go away. It just pushes it underground so that as a result, that collapse of confidence is continuing behind the scenes. So you end up with this sort of facade of normality and facade of permanence, uh, but it only takes a big enough shock or a widespread enough turbulence to just cause rapid collapse. After a career spent dealing with political violence far from home, David's now seeing the same things happening on his doorstep in the United States in the context of Donald Trump's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. I've been thinking about this for a while. The last polling that I saw suggested that about 75% of Republican voters believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Now, for someone that does this for a living, that's a really important marker or a, an important danger sign. Um, if people are interested in the fine print, I'd point you to a, a seminal article by Philip Kunz and Mark Thompson from uh, 2009 in the journal Comparative Politics, where they went through a whole series of historical examples to show that stolen elections are, uh, or the perception of stolen elections, are some of the strongest uh, revolutionary triggers. That's my, my sort of main issue right now, is that um, you know, if you believe the election was stolen, you therefore believe by definition that the Biden government is an illegitimate usurper regime. You also believe that future elections, for example, the midterms in 2022 or the, uh, the 2024 presidential election, will be meaningless and can't solve the problem. And there's actually a saying that's becoming quite 
widespread on the far right, which is that there's no way of voting our way out of this. Uh, and that's pushing a lot of people toward a belief that some kind of violence or secession or nullification of the federal government is is the, the way forward. And I've identified a number of flashpoint regions across the country based on simply mapping where we know that there are right-wing militia groups within about 25 miles of a left-wing militia group. Pacific Northwest, uh, the Chicago region, Kansas, Missouri area, the greater Appalachian mountain chain on the eastern side of the country, a couple of places down near the southern border. And one of the big lessons that I learned from watching what happened last year was, was that I was significantly underestimating the willingness of groups to travel in order to fight other groups. If it spills over into a nationwide level of crisis like we saw last year, I think if that happens, the capacity of the federal government to deal with it is going to be pretty limited. And I think that's where you see it spiral out of control. So how did we get here? This goes all the way back to the foundation of America itself, a battle between two ideals, a land built on life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and another parallel America, one built on slavery, violence, authoritarianism and paranoia. America's civil war in the 1860s might have ended the institution of slavery, but anti-democratic forces weren't defeated. They were empowered, given a deal. So-called Jim Crow laws ensured that black people in southern American states were excluded from any kind of political power. As the 19th century gave way to the 20th, the paranoid, violent racists in American society began to emerge back into the open. Southern states were segregated societies and an America-first strand of fascism reared its head in plain sight. This fascism remains a poison in parts of American society today. In the late 1960s, the Republican Party made a stark choice, paving the way for the discord and disarray of the modern era. In 1968, Richard Nixon defeated Governor George Romney, father of Senator Mitt Romney, for the party's presidential nomination, using rhetoric of law and order as a form of dog-whistle politics, scraping the barrel of America's divided past in a calculated strategy to secure power. And to those who say that law and order is the code word for racism, there and here is a reply. Our goal is a lot of this story starts in the 1960s, when the Democrats got behind civil rights. Terry Boughton is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and the writer of Taming Democracy, a history of America since the revolution. Republicans using the Southern strategy, which was about appealing to the white working class voters and Southern whites to try to peel them off of the Democratic Party, um, using racist appeals, because you know economic appeals weren't going to work because the Republicans were all about tax cuts for the wealthy and you know eliminating social programs that a lot of the white working class benefited from. Then there's also looking at the rise of social movements in the 70s. So the rise of the women's movement and the rise of a, a gay rights movement. Um, and to the extent that those movements and the goals of those movements have been adopted by a political party, it's been the Democrats. And so people who opposed and, and saw all of these changes, right, the secularization of society and the embrace of gay rights and the embrace of women's rights and the embrace of uh, black rights or Chicano rights or whatever, right, as it was called at the time in the, in the 70s, became objects of resentment. And, and the thing is, these groups realize they're losing. They're losing the culture. Corporate America has gone with a multicultural society, the multicultural future. And so it, there is this sense of the world is dying. This, everything is changing. Our world is dying. This is our last chance. What's happening is the culmination of a number of, of long-term trends, but both political and demographic and, and changes in, in the United States. Whether we use fascism or authoritarianism, the underlying question is that didn't the founding fathers put some safeguards into the Constitution to prevent that kind of thing, right? To prevent these all of the abuses of power that we were seeing. And the answer is no. America's founding fathers created the chief executive with great power, but few checks. Um, and it wasn't an oversight uh, that this was by design. 
Um, which may seem ironic given that the American Revolution was breaking away from monarchy, that one of the main complaints was that, you know, the, the autocratic power of colonial governors. Um, and so it would see, you would think it would be the opposite, but in fact it wasn't. Um, what they wanted was a, a powerful national government that could take strip powers away from the states and concentrate them in a, in a national government that they designed to be, this is the quote, like a stronger barrier against democracy. That's, that's what they called it. But even at the time that they made this, they were warned about it, right? People saying that an unrestrained presidency like this is going to create all kinds of problems in the future. And to me, the most chilling part of it was how, like when you read these predictions about what's going to happen, they're spot on. They explain with great accuracy the exact ways that future presidents would abuse executive authority. This isn't going away. One of the ways to view the Trump era is to view it as the the dying gasp, I hope, of a worldview that was fundamentally thrown into disarray when Barack Obama became president, which is to say, you know, this this country that has a history of extraordinarily awful racial oppression baked into its sort of DNA from its inception has also then come to terms with the fact that in 2008, a black man was elected president of the United States. Professor Brian Class is a Washington Post columnist, host of the Power Corrupts podcast, and expert on despotism and dictatorship. The backlash that that wrought was an open embrace of racism of a kind that was always there before Trump, but was simmering beneath the surface, I would say. And what Trump did was he said, you know, it's time to come out, right? It's safe to come out. And you had that that moment in Charlottesville in 2017 where those photos of the, the white supremacists marching through the streets, chanting horrible slogans and so on. The thing that was most striking to me about that photo was that they weren't wearing hoods, right? I mean, the hoods have always been there. The people who wear the hoods have always been there in the United States. They felt that they didn't need to wear them anymore. The manipulation of voting systems to make it harder for likely Democrat voters to cast a ballot seems to be one of the core elements of the modern Republican strategy, all the while falsely claiming that the other side is rigging elections. To me, this is the fundamental crux of the problem of American democracy right now. In order to get reelected as a Republican in 2021, you basically have to position yourself as a race-baiting authoritarian. And the reason for that is because the primary system is utterly broken and it encourages a small level of turnout, which ends up meaning the extremist vote and normal people don't. You know, you look at Republican presidents who've actually won power, they often win the Electoral College without winning the popular vote. So in that situation where you have this massive disparity, there's a built-in incentive for Republicans to pursue minority paths to power. You know, I think that there is a clear line in the sand that has been drawn. Republican voters got a taste of hyper-polarized authoritarian politics driven by culture wars, and they like it. All of the establishment figures understand that, you know, people like Paul Ryan, people like Mitt Romney, these are the sort of the old guards of comparatively sane Republican party politics. They're dead to the Republican base. And it becomes sort of clear where this is heading. You have a political strategy that's longstanding based on demographics, based on institutional arrangements and so on. And then you have a would-be authoritarian strongman actually take power in a minority power pathway through the electoral college rather than the popular vote. So I think the manipulations that you're seeing now, the sort of, this is the, this is the behind the scenes stuff. This is the stuff that the political junkies are paying attention to, but nobody else knows is happening. And what they're demanding of their elected officials is effectively the idea that it doesn't matter whether we win or lose the election, we want power. You know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and, you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk. And it's in this context of increasingly extreme partisanship that Trump's Republican Party has taken the next step and decided to ignore any election result that doesn't suit them. When Trump lost the 2020 election in the state of Georgia, he tried to intimidate senior officials in the state into finding him the votes he needed. I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, 
I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. These alarming issues are being taken seriously by some of the most sober analytical media outlets. In a front-page story for The Economist, Washington correspondent Idris Carloon details just how serious this fault line has become. I wanted to surface the risk of election subversion or the changing of who administers elections and how they're administered rather than the question of voter suppression, um, which has been the conversation that a lot of people have been animated by. And the reason for that is that it is unprecedented. Uh, Election administration used to be a fairly boring and nonpartisan uh, issue. Americans didn't really care about who was administering their elections and which local officials were going to do it. And, and more importantly, the officials who were in charge of those things did not change their opinions based on who won. And I think that what we've seen in the aftermath of the 2020 election is that actually this is the new nexus of extreme partisanship and extreme polarization. And that's concerning. Um, it's concerning because of the people who are running to uh, be chief elections officials in lots of states. They've endorsed the, the theory that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him. Um, obviously, that means that when they come to administer elections in 2022, potentially 2024, depending on term limits, they might do so in a way that's that's unfair and that's tilted to one side. And that, you know, that will deepen the legitimacy crisis um, in American democracy that is already underway. A representative, a state representative in Arizona, who's now running to be the chief elections officer in that state, filed uh, a bill that would allow the state legislature to overrule the general population vote in the state. Of course, you can imagine what scenario that would be used, but that's a warning sign. This is the culmination of decades. You know, Trump certainly deserves a lot of the blame, but the acceleration of extreme partisanship, the deepening epistemic closure of uh, American life as Americans no longer trust the same media, um, as they believe that the other side is is evil and worthy of antipathy. Um, these things have maybe accelerated because of Trump's intervention, but uh, they certainly predate him. And controlling those forces is ultimately what is going to, I think, curtail uh, some of these ambitions. So I, you know, it, it doesn't feel to me like we are at 1864 election of Lincoln yet, um, but it's a lot closer to that feeling than I think I feel very comfortable with. You know, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. So maybe it's not 1864 yet, but can democracy survive this pressure? This is the failing state David Kilcullen was talking about. So like, supposing you had an election where it's Biden versus Trump again, and Trump's, you know, much less popular that people just want him out of there and he loses by like 20 million votes. You know, it's just complete blowout, not even close. But then conservative states just refuse to honor the election. They change the rules after the election happens and they send electors to Biden. Well, now it's like you're in the realm of raw power. Ryan Cooper is national correspondent for the week. He follows US politics in all of its troubling detail and fears the Republican abandonment of democracy sets a potentially fatal precedent. Yeah, there's a very, I would say, clear and present danger to democracy, even allowing to have a democratic president, uh, you know, in the form of Joe Biden is is presumptively illegitimate in the in the uh, minds of the conservative party. And so they have invented an alternate reality uh, where Donald Trump is the real president. There's a poll recently showed that a majority of Republicans uh, said that Donald Trump actually won the election and a large majority of Republicans think he should run for election again, re-election in 2024. And, you know, Trump really is drawing on a very a uh, deep and dark history and is probably in firmer control of the Republican Party now than he was when he was president. And so um, it's a quite the historical irony that eventually the Republican Party would end up inheriting the legacy of the Confederacy, uh, the their ancient enemy, you know, back in the 1860s. But they did. And that's their uh, absolute base of support now. And so, you know, Republicans are in many ways uh, returning to that same tradition, uh, not quite to the same level of violence, at least not yet. But in future, I definitely see a strong possibility of political violence becoming very widespread. 
who can muster forces, you know, to like seize control of the, you know, administrative apparatus and the military and so on. Uh, that is not something you want to see. And it's the entire thing that democracy is supposed to prevent in the first place is just like a violent quest for power where whoever has the most guns and organization wins. I certainly would not want to be in the middle of that. In January 2021, we got a taste of Ryan Cooper's grim predictions. By then, the Trump camp knew that there weren't any more votes to be found. By any conventional measure, they had lost the election. We've seen that there has been a violent, illiberal strain to the Republican movement. But now the Republicans abandoned democracy. They were willing to use mob violence to claim political power of the President of the United States. We decide the election of the President of the United States. Back in 2006, I was working in Iraq at the height of the insurgency. Two American generals really ran that show, General Stanley McChrystal and General Michael Flynn. Flynn was, if I'm being honest, pretty hard work, kind of person that brings their preformed views to a meeting and doesn't like to hear from anyone that isn't ready to reinforce them. But if you had told me that 15 years later, General Flynn would be trying to mastermind a violent overthrow of the United States government, well, I think I'd have said that Iraq was getting to you. But by 2021, Flynn was already a notorious figure. He'd been sacked from Trump's government for lying to the FBI about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. In another era, that would have killed the career of a US security official, but Trump pardoned him and brought him back into the fold. And then there was his wingman, Roger Stone, one of the most notorious political operatives of recent years. As the Trump campaign began to realize it was running out of time to rig the election, Flynn had a proposal, martial law, a military takeover. This was the stuff of banana republics, weak democracies, but Trump loved the idea. However, it was clear that the US military would never go for this. So Trump's people came up with plan B, rouse a rabble of Trump supporters in an act of insurrection. Roger Stone knew how to work this sort of crowd. This is not an election between Republicans and Democrats. This is not a fight between liberals and conservatives. This is nothing less than an epic struggle for the future of this country between dark and light. Between the godly and the godless. Between good and evil. And we will win this fight or America will step off into a thousand years of darkness. The next morning, they struck. When we got there, it was chaotic. Angry people, laughing people. You'd look over one direction, there were people washing uh, tear gas out of their eyes. Uh, there was a constant stream of people moving. Um, but then the, the group of them were packed on the stairs. And those people were there just sort of like jubilantly holding up their signs for like photo opportunities. Um, but at the same time, you'd see lines of paramilitary guys in stack formation, which is where they put a hand on top of the shoulder of the, of the person in front of them, all in their camo gear uh, and helmets. Uh, now, this is a formation they use to assault. This is for urban assault. This is a military formation. It was weird. It was just deeply, deeply weird. And, and the, you know, hearing all the different conspiracy theories that were mingling there, and everybody had their own one. Like there, you know, there were the anti-vaccine people and the anti-Fauci people and the anti-mask people. And then there were the anti-communist people. And then there were the just pro-Trump people. And then the paramilitary people. And the guy with the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, like hardcore racists were there. All these people are mingling with folks who look like, you know, your aunt or your uncle. You know, it was, it was... Like, there was nothing wrong with that. Like, that wasn't a, a problem. Um, and and that, that was the frightening part to me. That and the casual embrace of violence. 
like they're talking about hanging people, you know, and that was frightening. And, and just talking about it and laughing about it. But the moment that changed things as far as the, the, the tenor and tone of the crowd was somebody came out from the inside the building out into one of the back balconies and shouted, they shot a girl. And that was, of course, Ashley Babbitt. And that, that just became the, like a frenzy point. And then when they came out with the gurney with Ashley Babbitt, uh, I was about 10 feet away. I mean, I like stared right into her eyes and was watching her eyes as she rolled past. And this was the QAnon woman, Ashley Babbitt, the QAnon supporter who had, was with the crowd that was trying to get into the speaker's lobby. Uh, and they'd smashed a window and, and the Capitol Police inside were telling them, stand your ground, do not come through this window and had guns trained at the, at the, you know, at the line. And she went through and was shot in the neck. And what I, from what I saw, she was, she was gone. Uh, her eyes were glassy. And I mean, there was blood everywhere. And that's when things really started to change. And, and the crowd got a lot more, you know, uh, angry at the police, started calling them traitors, murderers. Um, and and that, was, that was pretty frightening. On January 6th, 2021, I, I think we hit a pivot point in the decline of American democracy. What you saw playing out on, you know, live on CNN, these horrible images of extreme violence in what was supposed to be the building that represents American democracy most around the world is a group of people inspired by their own president in an effort to basically say, we don't care that we lost, we're still taking power. And what the reaction to that was from the Republican Party was largely to shrug because even though they spent huge amounts of time and money investigating uh, a series of other past events of, of political violence, the Benghazi terrorist attack, for example, when it came to a systematic coordinated assault on the heart of American democracy, the Republican Party refused to vote for a comprehensive inquiry into why it happened and how to stop it from happening again. And in fact, you know, you have members of the Republican Party later on likening the people who took over the Capitol, going through barricades, attacking police officers, resulting in the deaths of multiple people, likening them to tourists, right? Saying they were just trying to go in the building, they were patriots and so on. And also the fact that Donald Trump himself believes them to have been righteous, right? Believes that they were doing the right thing. So when you look at that moment in the, the sort of trajectory of America's democracy in crisis, I think we're going to look at it as a turning point where the Republican Party had its opportunity to distance itself from this kind of politics. It was a ready-made opportunity for them to say, enough. And, and I think because of that, the Republican Party has sort of made clear uh, what it sees as its political loyalties, unequivocally to Donald Trump, unequivocally to a brand of political authoritarianism that leads to that level of political violence, and and one that I think uh, we we won't see the last of January sixth in the United States. I'm afraid that there will be more January sixth to come, whether they're at the U.S. Capitol or around the country. I can't say, but I think that political violence will continue to be part of the fabric of American democracy uh, for the foreseeable future. I think what was disturbing in retrospect was after we went around and we walked around the front, this was the area where they had brutalized their way in and people who had witnessed that and had seen that um, and who had cheered it on were, you know, hours later, some of them giddy about it and, and talking about this as being the start of things and how, you know, this was... This was their American Revolution. They called it, this is our, our, our 1776. I, I couldn't not come. It's too important. It's too important not to come. He invited me, I had to come. It's worth taking stock here. Violent insurrections to dispute election results are not something that happens in settled democracies. And perhaps the most disturbing thing about this is the fact that even after these extraordinary events, Trump remains the undisputed leader of the Republican Party, seemingly determined to fight the next presidential election and determined that his people run in midterms in 2022. 
so America continues to turn in on itself. One of the things driving all this polarization is a sense of cynicism and despondency in America, in part connected to the sense of failure over the post-9-11 era. People don't trust their government anymore. When Donald Trump announced his run for the presidency in 2015, he didn't give the usual American talk about hope and a great nation. He talked about failure, about how America wasn't winning anymore. And the start of the bit where they weren't winning was in Iraq after the disastrous decision to invade in 2003. Briefing the night patrol. This unit won't enter Fallujah yet, but in the coming days, the plan is to overwhelm the insurgents in the city with a major assault. This is just the beginning of a large counterinsurgency operation. David Kilcullen warned us earlier that the US was spiraling toward the realm of failed states he'd worked in. In fact, what David saw back in Iraq has gone on to inform his take on America's current tensions. You know, my first book was called The Accidental Guerrilla, and I talked about how the threat of terrorism is real, but it comes from a fairly small, narrowly defined group of people. By taking a much too overboard approach and targeting entire nations and states, we actually made the terrorism problem dramatically worse than it had to be. And I talked about the sort of accidental guerrilla effect where large numbers of people that weren't Al-Qaeda supporters ended up fighting us because of the way we overreacted to what happened on 9-11. There's a risk now of a domestic accidental guerrilla syndrome. Uh, the threat is real from the right, absolutely. But to the extent that every Republican or every Trump supporter feels they personally are under threat from law enforcement or from the military, now you've got a massive recruiting base for motivated actors to take advantage of and, and turn this into something much more serious than we've seen today. The guy that I would point to in this is Michel Foucault, the, the French radical theorist of the 1970s who talked about boomerang effects, right? So things that you do overseas, to enemies overseas, eventually come back and those same techniques get applied against your own population in the homeland. And we've seen militarization of police. We've seen police forces explicitly adopting counterinsurgency theory in the way that they react to US populations. We've seen um, somewhere between two and three million veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan come back with a level of knowledge about how to run an urban or a rural insurgency against the American government, right? This is not, again, unique in history, right? The Spanish uh, Civil War was in part fueled by the major defeat of Anwal in, in 1922 and a disillusionment um, amongst the population with that. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was in large part fed by the 20 years of war in, in um, Afghanistan and, and the aftermath. So this is not unique, but it's certainly very true right now. I think, I think the most important variable here is how the government chooses to respond to that. That's what really bothers me. Um, I think there's a, a sort of lack of seriousness by senior leaders on both sides. But if you go down a layer from political elites in Washington to the mass base on the right and the left, people are absolutely buying these arguments and taking them very seriously and you know, getting ready to act on them. But could it really happen to America? This isn't Yemen. It's not even the former Yugoslavia, a wealthy country that fell apart in ways that nobody saw coming. Let's go back to Jack Goldston. Remember that he came up with the model to analyse state collapse? When a decade ago, his colleague Peter Turchin applied this model to the US, he concluded that America was heading for the turbulent 20s, with the foreboding premonition of a populist America First leader sowing a whirlwind of conflict. I asked Jack if there was any vindication in seeing his theories playing out so accurately. Well, before January 6th, I, I wrote a review of Turchin's book on America from the Civil War to the present using my model. And I looked at that again before our interview, and the last two sentences in my review were, it's nice to see the model work so well, but it frightens me because I'm not sure we can avoid the predictions of the model. So I'm very worried that the violence will continue. It's just waiting for a provocation. It's waiting for uh, the next election results. We've never except maybe in 1876, <laughs> following the Civil War and Reconstruction, 
you know, since then, we haven't had such a polarized political class, but now we do. And so as long as that's the case, every election becomes a provocation, uh, something to contest. Uh, the color revolutions that we've seen around the world generally followed elections whose result was disputed, whether it was Milosevic claiming a victory in Serbia or Yanukovych claiming a victory in Ukraine. Um, when people don't believe the results, they go to the streets. If you have one major party that says, nope, I, I think everything the other party does is a threat to the country. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to cooperate. Uh, we're just going to oppose them and we're going to defeat them any way we can. Then you're reduced to identity politics. So you look at a country like Iraq. How do you compromise between Sunni faith and Shia faith or between Arabs and Kurds if both of them say, we believe we're right, you're not only wrong, but a danger to the country, so we have to stop you from coming to power. Well, that's not a recipe for democracy. And that's exactly what the situation of rising inequality and wages not keeping up with national economic growth uh, is going to lead us to. When people are frightened, they feel they're being uh, badly treated by the system, they're going to look for some kind of tribal group to give them a sense of solidarity and support. So we have to stop that. But we have a situation now where the Republican Party has essentially adopted an ethno-nationalist view. You know, we represent the true people and anyone else on the political opposition, they are a threat. And so, sure, you know, you, you're going to take up arms if you need to against those people, just as you would if there was an invading army on your doorstep trying to subjugate your country, because that's what you're being told is happening. And you have to remember, America is a country that has more weapons than people. And everybody can go down to their local Walmart or Sears and buy an automatic weapon and train to use it. It's a tinderbox. And it's not going to take much of a spark to create large, violent events. And that scares me. I couldn't have, in my wildest dreams, imagined leaving, you know, my home, my, <laughs> the, you know, the kind of beacon of democracy for all of its faults, and kind of seeing that downward trend from afar is actually watching with just my jaw dropped, because you're like, wait, this wasn't supposed to happen. Yasmin Sirhan is a staff writer at The Atlantic and a regular on our sister show, The Bunker, watching her home country through the cracks in her fingers from her current beat in London. When I was watching the insurrection on the Capitol, I couldn't believe my eyes because before I lived here, I lived in D.C. So, you know, I saw these streets I used to just run down. <laughs> and I even saw some of my friends and colleagues from college, uh, the incredible Rachel Scott at ABC, like reporting. I was watching her reporting on this and kind of seeing get increasingly dangerous. And I was like, not only am I seeing my friends potentially in harm's way, journalists in harm's way, um, but I'm also seeing like my fellow Americans smashing buildings of our capital. Like these are places we toured when we were in the eighth grade. Like <laughs> we would travel to D.C. to go and visit them. Like these are our spaces. They're, you know, th this is our building. What are you doing to it? You're, you're destroying it. Um, if that were to become the status quo, this idea that, you know, Americans would effectively abandon the shared notion that we believe elections to be fair. And gosh, I mean, whatever comes of that, it's kind of it's it's kind of hard to imagine anything being worse than what we saw. But but I think those are the kind of environments that you you would be in where you think of like, you know, how how does a populace live with each other when we, we think we can't actually settle our, our differences and, and choose who elects us in, in a peaceful and democratic way. Where, where, where does that take you? Um, I kind of shudder to think that it would be something that violent. But we've seen a taste of that violence, and that was just on the first attempt. Yasmin's parents came to America from the war-torn Middle East. They, and millions like them, are the other America, the melting pot country that offers the opportunity and promise to people from all over the world to become citizens of a great democracy. How is the crisis going to affect this way of life? 
I ask myself this question a lot, particularly around the election, this notion of how do you engage with people with whom you disagree because they're not just, you know, people outside your social media bubble, but in some cases, and in mine, they're family members. How do you have Christmas and Thanksgiving and like all these things together? Can you have the, when you don't share the same concept of reality? Because it feels like everything we talk about these days, every conversation is just destined to draw us back to something that we fundamentally disagree on. Um, I was raised to like, you know, respect people irrespective of our, of our differences. But when those hit at your basic values and in some cases, even your identity, you know, say you you see, you know, your your family members voting for a, 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 an idea that goes against you or tries to exclude you in some way. That's really hard to square. That's difficult to deal with. Um, it's weird because, you know, my my parents have obviously been there for decades and they got political asylum after the um, the Gulf War in Kuwait. And I think that was the great promise of this country, right? This idea that you could come and, and be part of it and have your family there and grow your career and do all these great things. You know, they didn't talk politics a ton when I was growing up, but I, I think we probably share a lot of similar views. And obviously we have conversations about things, at least my mom and I certainly do. And I think weirdly in a way I see her as kind of being aghast at what she's seeing as though she wants to kind of defend the America that took her in. And and it's it's almost kind of in, perhaps counterintuitive to think here is a, you know, a, a Muslim woman, an Arab woman, an immigrant who's come in and is like, what are you doing to my country? Like, why, why are we doing this to each other and you're combating these ideals? Like I came to this country, I became a citizen. I, I think I have a pretty good sense of what the, the values that these countries stand for and, and how central democracy and, and you know, having free and fair elections is. So everything that's happened over the course of the last year and more was just kind of, I think, really shattered also her image of, of what America is, having lived there for so long. Because as I say, if we don't share even basic narratives about who we are and, and what our country is, I, I don't know how the, the great project works. All over America, people like Yasmin's mother are asking themselves, what can be done? Is there any way to get the US back on track? Is the road to violent authoritarianism a one-way street? Professor Brian Klaas. You know, already the United States is not a functional democracy. It's a broken democracy. And I think the big question is whether a broken democracy gets transformed into a a semi-authoritarian mess. And that's where we're headed now is we're, we're headed away from democracy to something that is democratic in some of the trappings. It will still hold elections. There will still be courts and so on. But the actual functioning of the system will be contorted in such a way as to undermine majority will and no longer be considered a democratic country. And when you look at places around the world where this has happened, I mean, the the, the states that come to mind are not states that the U.S. wants to be compared to, right? Hungary. Uh, in in Europe, and then of course Turkey are, are two that often come to mind of, of countries that have had hyperpolarization, authoritarian strongmen come to power, and the slow but steady dismantling of the democratic process. And those institutions uh, crumbled under long periods of time. Right, Hungarian democracy didn't die in one day, neither did Turkish democracy, but they sure enough did die. And and I'm very much afraid that the U.S. is headed in that direction. We're in very dangerous territory, and I think that. Americans tend to have this view of their own political system that is rooted in American exceptionalism in every sense of the word, right? American exceptionalism in the sense that the rules don't apply to us, but also that, you know, bad things don't happen to us. Our country is immune from these uh, undercurrents that have swept the world and toppled democracies elsewhere. And it's just a myth. You know, I've been warning about the dangers of Trump's authoritarianism since 2015 when he started his candidacy because it wasn't funny. It was never funny. I mean, it was a sideshow to a lot of people back then, but this was something where for people like me who study this breakdown of democracy around the world, every single red flag was being raised for the last you know five years. And you just sort of think, you know, we've seen this movie before and you're not going to like the ending. How does this stop? So people who have witnessed the death of their own democracy learn a couple of lessons. One is that you need to save democracy before it dies because it's way harder to rebuild than it is to save it when you have it. 
So this is a lesson for Democrats right now, which is to say, fight hard to save American democracy. Use whatever procedural methods you can that are legal and democratic to save the framework and institutions of the democratic process. And the second lesson I think that many people who witness the death of their own democracy learn is that divides about taxes and healthcare and immigration are secondary to unity around belief in democracy, which is to say you have to have big tent politics when it comes to protecting democratic institutions. There are ideological rivalries in the United States in which there are many people who do not see eye to eye on hundreds of different policy items, but do see eye to eye in the idea that American elections should be democratic, that the process should be democratic, and that the institutions are sacrosanct. And trying to build a democratic caucus with a small d in the Senate and in the House would be a very powerful uh, antidote in some ways to the, the current authoritarian wing of the Republican Party. And so this to me is one of those break the glass moments where it's like, yes, we absolutely want to have transformative politics. We want to remedy many of the injustices, inequality, climate change, all those things that are urgent priorities for the United States. But they do require democracy in place in order to achieve them. So it is a meta threat that to me uh, overrides all other threats that are facing the United States in the next two years. But none of this is happening in a vacuum. As America turns in on itself, its weakness is a perfect opportunity for others. Russia, the Taliban, Saudi Arabia all found ways to take advantage of the chaos of the Trump era. And above all, China. China is gaining strength and aggressively hitting out against anyone that gets in its way. Are China and America destined for conflict, or can this be resolved and avoided? Join us again on Doomsday Watch when we look at World War Xi, the rise of China. Here in the South China Sea, with the world's naval fleets assembled, everything hangs in the balance. Commodore Sarah Hunt is a veteran Navy officer towards the end of her career. She's on one of these freedom of navigation patrols asserting the right of international ships to traverse these waters. But we now cut to the White House, the telephone rings, and on the other end of the line is the Chinese military attache to the United States. And he has a message. The Chinese government will no longer tolerate U.S. warships navigating through the South China Sea. And at which point, the U.S. is hit with a massive cyber attack. We see nations around the globe entering into a massive war. So he's making China great again? The fact is that the United States is a Pacific power. There is no winner coming out of this kind of clash. Peaceful reunification of Taiwan is very, very unlikely. It is definitely a flashpoint. So now we deal with an environment where the dragons are back. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.